Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle for men. My name is Ewan Lawson and this is season one of Blokeology. Season one is all about running, from getting you started as a complete newbie to exploring new techniques for more advanced runners. So today I'm just going to talk about a couple of smaller topics today. One of them is about running in sand and running on softer surfaces. And the other one's about Lyme disease. You can find the show notes at www.blokeology.io forward slash zero one zero. And you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. So let's get cracking. Right. Okay. So I think today's episode is actually going to be a little bit shorter than usual. I'm away on holiday at the moment. I'm up in the northwest or the west of Scotland, just slightly north of Arisaig. It's an incredible scenery. The weather's been fantastic with beautiful hills and astonishing coastline and fantastic beaches. And that's just made me think a little bit about running on sand. And the advice we often give is to run on softer surfaces and it reduces your chance of injury. And I couldn't help wondering while I was here, what actually is the chance of that happening? And so I had a look at a couple of papers to discover what the differences are running in sand and how we can train with the kind of different surfaces in mind and what difference it actually makes. Uh, So one of the first papers I found was called Effective Training Surface on Acute Physiological Responses After Interval Training. And this is based over in Australia by uh, Martin Binney and colleagues, and they've seemed to have written a number of papers related to uh, sand and training on different surfaces. And basically what they did in this study was that they actually did a small experiment with what they describe as well-trained team sport athletes, just 10 of them. Now, that's a bit of a recurrent theme in exercise and sports medicine studies that often the numbers are very small, And 10 is really a very tiny number for any kind of trial or kind of test of response. And also, it's very commonly that the the studies that are done in sports medicine are on well-trained sports athletes already. Some of the studies we covered, like last week, for example, were in novices. And it's particularly important that we look at those because well-trained sports athletes, if you're a well-trained runner, that's all well and good. But how generalizable is it to somebody who's perhaps hasn't done as much training? It's harder to tell. And there's definitely no question that overall, in research into sports medicine, it tends to be in younger, fitter people who are already exercising to a considerable degree. So you've got to be a little bit careful when you interpret any study that has that as its baseline. So what they did in this study was that they actually compared the effect of training on sand versus the effect of training on grass. And it was all to do with interval training, uh, interval training sessions. So getting people to do short, hard bursts and obviously high intensity intervals are a really good way or um, higher intensity intervals, perhaps I should say, are a really good way to um, as part of your training program. Um, And what they did was they actually measured some physiological markers in these people. They took blood out of them and had a look at things like blood lactate. They looked at their rating of perceived effort and their heart rate were also recorded. And they got some venous blood samples and they checked things like uh, myoglobin, which is a protein found in muscle, creatinine kinase, haptoglobin, and C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker. And what was really interesting about this was that they showed that 
There were significantly higher blood lactate and heart rate responses experienced during the SANS session, which is what you'd expect. But what was interesting was there was no actual difference in the blood markers that were shown. And the whole thing about those blood markers is that they're showing, they, they are good markers for muscle damage, inflammation, and breakdown of blood cells. What this is in effect saying is that interval training on sand is just as high in intensity. In fact, it's possibly higher intensity, but it doesn't seem to have the damage that's associated with running on a harder surface, in this case, grass. And clearly, grass is relatively forgiving compared to uh, concrete or tarmac in that regard as well. So there's a real kind of physiological benefit. You get a greater physiological response running on sand and doing your intervals on sand without any apparent detriment on your next day endurance performance, as the phrase that they used. And I think putting that into context, there is a chance that this actually means that running on sand can reduce your risk of injury. It, I'm not sure I've seen any evidence of this, but presumably there's a good chance that actually tarmac versus grass versus sand, there's a content, there's a spectrum here where the softer surfaces make a difference. Though it's worth bearing in mind, sand does have some u- unique characteristics when it comes to running in and the way it gives way and the extra effort involved in running in sand. Rooting around in some of the evidence for this, actually, it was quite obvious that in fact... They're not really too sure. They're still trying to determine exactly the biomechanical reasons why it is harder work and such an effort to move in sand. The same team also produced another paper called Sand Training, Exercise-Induced Muscle Damage and Inflammatory Response to Matched Intensity Exercise. And that was in the Journal of Physiology and Nutrition. And this was clearly a very similar study where they basically actually got 10 well-trained athletes, got them doing interval sessions, and I don't think these were sports-related athletes. And they took blood samples, checked for myoglobin, C-reactive protein, which, as I said, is an inflammatory marker, and did the same sort of thing. And they very clearly showed that the markers of post-exercise muscle damage were reduced by running on softer ground surfaces. So I think the, the real practical message here is, well, I've got two points I'd like to make. The first is, it looks like the evidence suggests that running on sand or softer ground surfaces reduces your risk reduces your risk of muscle damage and that's a good thing however my second point is that these are proxy markers they aren't actually they didn't actually measure the injury rate they couldn't do with only 10 athletes there's no way they've got enough numbers there so in fact we're making a leap and assuming that just because there are some biochemical changes they're actually going to translate into a clinical difference And that's always really important because what we really want to know is that we have a reduced rate of injuries. These studies don't show that at all. You have to make that extrapolation. You have to make that leap from from knowing that the blood chemicals and the blood markers are different to assuming that there won't be any injuries. And you can't know that. There are lots of other factors. And it's exactly the same. The pharmaceutical industry have done this to us for years. They're always presenting proxy markers rather than hard clinical endpoints. Wherever possible, you always want hard clinical endpoints. And so I'd be extremely cautious about using proxy markers as a fixed, definite, that this is going to reduce injury. It's really encouraging, and it does suggest that there is potentially a benefit from running on softer ground surfaces like sand if you're going to do some hard intervals. I went out and did some intervals on the sand yesterday on the beach here, and it was absolutely stunning, and no question that it's brilliant for the soul. You know, there's 
the islands of rum, egg and sky in the background, incredible blue skies and coastal scenery. Ironically, I have actually got a calf strain this morning. I went out for a run and within about not even a quarter of a mile, probably only a couple of hundred yards, I have got a definite cramp and a tension in my left calf and I had to stop and just walk home again. That, of course, is highly likely to be entirely coincidental and I'm certainly not blaming running on sand. It's a lesson you have to remember. My biochemical markers might be a lot lower today than if I'd done those intervals on sand. But on the other hand, I've got a calf strain and I can't know whether that's related to the ground surface or not. Okay, so the other thing that I just wanted to briefly cover today was Lyme disease. Um, And the reason for that is because when we arrived at the cottage here up on the Western Highlands, one of the things that the lady said was to be careful of ticks and watch out because there has been known to be Lyme disease in these parts. Now, actually being involved in outdoor sports and climbing, and uh, I know a little bit about Lyme disease anyway. I've certainly had experience of it as a GP and I'm, you know, in a relatively rural community as well. So I have come across Lyme disease and understand a wee bit about it. But it is known that the Western Highlands and the Highlands in general are um, a region where there is an increased rate of Lyme disease. But equally, there are other parts. You don't have to come as far north as that. There's places in the south of England, Dartmoor, Exmoor, and it's been shown that there's even Lyme disease in Richmond Park in the middle of London. Anywhere where there's a bit of moorland and where there's usually where there's wild animals, deer, sheep, ticks can then Lyme disease can then thrive. Lyme disease itself is um, it's usually it's it's named after a town in Connecticut. And if you want a really good overview of Lyme disease and its kind of history and all about the bug and its life cycle, because it's got a really complicated life cycle in terms of the the bug getting into ticks and then feeding on animals like small rodents and then having a single feed and then getting back into the larger prey, uh, larger animals, sorry, I should say. And then eventually the ticks hanging around waiting to pick up any other passing animals, which can include humans. There's a book called The Biography of a Germ, um, and it's a little short book, and it won a science prize many years ago now, but it's a love, it's a little gem of a book, really well written and really interesting. I'll stick that in the show notes for anybody. So Lyme disease is usually related to the bug Borrelia, um, and there are lots of different varieties of Borrelia that can cause it, depending where you are in the world. Last autumn there was a bit more of a push on this and a bit of a publicity effort with Lyme disease. And that came from the um, health authorities in uh, the UK. And I think that's partly because there'd been some higher profile cases. A couple of celebrities had picked up Lyme disease and had problems with it. Our very own Jeff McCarthy, who we interviewed on the Blokeology podcast a couple of weeks ago, has had problems with Lyme disease. And he's talked about that at his blog, runeatrepeat.co.uk as well. The first thing I'd say is if you get a tick, it doesn't mean you're going to get Lyme disease. Less than 10% of ticks will actually have the bug in it and they have to be attached for a good wee while. Not sure exactly how long, but if you remove ticks in a prompt fashion, then you're not going to have any difficulty. So probably the first thing to do is to be aware that when you're out and about, actually not to get, not to be aware that you need to check yourself for ticks when you get back. If you can avoid getting bitten by a tick and a tick getting hold of you in the first place then that's even better and there are various ways that you can do that you know wearing long trousers long sleeves are kind of a couple of options if you're walking that may not be so practical when it's super hot as it is at the moment in the summer or if you're when you're out running but you could actually potentially put on insect repellent as well and they can be helpful in keeping things at bay perhaps the main thing though is to 
spot them promptly and then remove them. Um, when you do see a tick, the general advice is to pull it directly outwards, upwards. You don't need to twist it at all. You've got to be a bit careful about using small tweezers because they can be, they can just sort of, they can be a little bit too sharp and too small and they can nip off the, the tick and leave bits of it inside you. They are very small. They're just like the kind of a, this, you know, a size of almost like a poppy seed, quite little, perhaps get a little bit bigger. I've only ever had a couple myself um, and they just pulled straight off. It, well worth considering investing in a tick removal tool. You can get them. If you've got a dog, you may have them already because vets will sell them, but they'll sell them in chemists. And a lot of people will just pop them in the bag when they're away, walking, climbing, running, away on a holiday in areas where there's more likely to be ticks. It's a sensible little thing to have in the bottom of your toilet bag, a little tick removal tool, and it just makes it really easy to nip them off. So how do you know if you do get bitten by a tick? Now, the problem with, the problem with Lyme disease is a lot of people who get bitten by ticks and never even know they were bitten by a tick. But if you are bitten by a tick, there are certain things you can watch for. General advice now is if you're bitten by a tick, you don't need antibiotics just because you've been bitten by a tick, just in case. We've all seen the adverts around and about these days about careful use of antibiotics. And I think if we gave antibiotics to everybody, everybody who got a tick bite, we'd very quickly be in a position where we would run into far greater problems with antibiotic resistance than we do have already. The main thing is if you get a tick, watch for a little rash around it. Now, normally what happens is you get a little red area around it and then that red area spreads out and what can happen the center the center bit can clear as well a little bit and then you get a very distinctive rash which can look a little bit like a target or a bullseye where you've got this red edge with sort of central clearing and that's known as erythema migrans um, but it only happens in maybe one third to half of cases there's a little bit of debate about exactly how much it doesn't happen in all cases when you get lyme disease if you get a rash like that and there's a possibility of a tick bite, then you should absolutely seek medical attention and you're going to need a course of antibiotics. Though, of course, speak to your doctor and see what they think. If you get the rash and you're not sure about the tick bite, it's obviously well worth speaking to your doctor and they may well treat with antibiotics as well. If you get the tick bite, you nip it off quite quickly. There's no sign of any rash and you don't get any symptoms and you don't need to worry. The problem with Lyme disease, like many disorders, particularly at first, is that the symptoms are really nonspecific. It can just be like headache and fever and just feeling a bit off. And it's really hard to actually formally diagnose it. We can do, we would generally do antibodies, but sometimes the antibodies, if you do them at very early stages, they come back with false negative results. And so there may be a case that the antibodies have to be repeated. All of that should be done in consultation with your doctor who will look into things. People who get into real difficulty with Lyme disease are ones that have missed the initial, have missed the initial diagnosis, which, you know, can happen because... You know, having a bit, be feeling a bit unwell for a few days. And if you didn't realize you were bitten by a tick and you just feel unwell for a few days, then that's going to be an awful lot like just having a flu or a bit of a bug without anything terribly specific going on. You can get more serious complications if it's there for a long time. And that can be related to your, um, the neurological symptoms, nervous symptoms related to the nerves in your brain, the nerves, that, cranial nerves, or related to cardiovascular symptoms can happen sometimes. And I think that's what Matt Dawson, the rugby player, ex-rugby player, suffered from was some, uh, some kind of carditis. So the main thing with Lyme disease is probably just to have a good awareness for it. Be aware about ticks, know how to remove them, know how to check for them. And if you've got any suspicions, then by all means, seek attention from a doctor. But remember... Getting a tick bite on its own doesn't necessarily mean you need to have antibiotics and probably can just um, be, you can take an approach where you can just watch and wait and see 
if you start to feel unwell, then perhaps it's worth speaking to somebody at that point. Right, so I hope that was helpful. Just a couple of little different areas, a little bit of evidence about running on sand, and then a little bit of a talk through some of the factors around Lyme disease and ticks. The one thing I didn't get into with Lyme disease is chronic Lyme disease, and that's an area where there is a little bit more controversy about how to go about about diagnostic criteria and um, other areas. We won't go there today. One thing I did want to go into today is that to talk about what we're going to do with blokeology in the future. Currently, we're on season one, and that season one, as I said at the beginning, is all about running. But what I've been very aware of is that when I have conversations with people about running and their health, actually, we end up talking about all sorts of different things. It can be about their diet, about the other sports they do, about strength training, flexibility training, yoga, anything that comes up about their health issues. There are lots of different areas. And so it starts to feel, I've started to feel that the splitting things into seasons is a little bit artificial. And actually, we just need to throw everything in together. I think what we're going to do from next week is we're going to drop the season tag. We're going to be doing tons of stuff about running still in the future, but I'm just going to start mixing in lots of other things. And part of that is perhaps because I'm a little bit impatient and there's so many topics I want to cover. And I'd like to be able to cover topics which pop up on the news or a bit more topical But there are areas around other men's health issues, whether it's mental health or urological things like, you know, prostate problems or prostate cancer and cover all those. So as I said, there's still going to be lots and lots on running and that probably might well form the bulk of the episodes related in some way to that. And that's partly because that's my main activity. But I think from next week, I'm going to drop the season tag and we're just going to press on with lots of different health related fitness, health and lifestyle related uh, topics. We look forward to that. Thank you very much for listening. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.blocology.io forward slash 010. Please do leave a review and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. Any feedback is very welcome and you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at www.blocology.io. Thanks again.